0: Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, Star Talk Radio with Neil deGrasse Tyson, On the Media, Activism Today from 350.org, and a TED Talk by Al Gore.
1: Sometimes we talk about how money corrupts politics and the media here in the United States, but it also has an impact on education and scientific research. Case in point, Harold Hamm, he is the CEO of Continental Resources. He's this big oil tycoon here in the U.S. And lately, he's been very, very upset with the Oklahoma Geological Survey because it turns out that those damn researchers Hmm. are putting out information that goes against his oil drilling. Now, fracking has had a huge impact on Oklahoma and some other states that aren't likely to have earthquakes. Of course, Oklahoma, time to time, does have small quakes, but nothing big. But ever since fracking began, it turns out that things have changed. There have been more and more earthquakes. In fact, just last year, there were almost 500 or over 500. And so these the geological survey just needs to give us the information we need to know about what's happening with the oil and gas industry and what kind of impact it's having on the environment. Well, Harold Hamm was so upset about this that he actually sent an email to Oklahoma University threatening to basically go after the university in in an implied way. But he definitely indicated that he wanted to have some role in the way that these scientific studies are done. Now, let me give you some information. Uh, Larry Grillot, who is uh, someone who works at uh, the university, he is from the College of Earth and Energy, he's the dean of University of Oklahoma, said Mr. Hamm is very upset at some of the earthquake reporting to the point that he would like to see select OGS staff dismissed. So he's already trying to have an impact, he's trying to get people dismissed. Ham also expressed an interest in joining a search committee charged with finding a new director for the geological survey. And the dean wrote, Ham indicated that he would be visiting with Governor Mary Fallin on the topic of moving the OGS out of the University of Oklahoma. Now why are they so worried about what he thinks? Well, it turns out that Harold Hamm has donated more than $20 million oh. to the University of Oklahoma, and so money talks. So just to give you a sense of how much of an impact he's already had, uh, he, of course, has donated all this money. So as a result, the uh, Oklahoma Geological Survey was very, very slow to admit that fracking had an impact on the earthquakes in the state. Okay, so of course you have seismologists and other researchers from throughout the country indicating that, hey, you know, the fracking is actually having an impact on these earthquakes. And the Oklahoma Geological Survey did not sign on to that until much later. Yeah. Okay, so let's jump in. You guys tell me what you guys think about this and I'll give you more really depressing details.
2: Yeah, like I think anyone uh, watching this can understand that he is a businessman who has a financial stake in the state of the research into the effect of fracking on the geological activity of that state. But at the same time, if you've been watching our channel, a few weeks ago we showed you the data showing year by year the chart of earthquakes in Oklahoma. And it was nothing for decades and decades. And then in a three-year span it goes up, and like as you said, 400-fold increase. Mm -hmm. And if you live in Oklahoma, perhaps you don't want the state to disintegrate underneath you. Um, And so like he can try to have an influence, but we need to make sure that our universities are at least somewhat insulated from this sort of political and monetary pressure. It's
1: really difficult to do that because there have been um, instances of the Koch brothers funding entire departments at universities. And you have to understand, when you have these huge oil tycoons or coal tycoons who stand to make a lot of money or lose a lot of money based on the information that's released from that university, well, they're not going to fund that university because they're just doing it out of the goodness of their own hearts. They're yeah. doing it because they stand something to gain or lose as a result. So just to show you what kind of impact he's had after sending uh, these messages to officials at the university, apparently the newly hired incoming director of the OGS, Jeremy Boke will start work in July. Boak, who has been working as director of the Center for Oil Shale Technology and Research at the Colorado School of Mines, says that he had no communication with Ham or continental resources during his interview process. So already we're having people working for that department that would obviously do yeah. exactly what Harold Ham would want him to do.
3: Well, you know, all you, here is the vice president, the university's vice president of public affairs, name is Catherine Bishop, and she claims... She was asked about that, and, you know, what, nothing, no, Mr. Ham didn't want to do So it seems like the people who are getting the most money from this guy are totally in bed with them. you know, and that's what really, you know, mm-hmm. people forget, like, well, you know, presidents of universities, they really don't do anything except raise money for the university. Like, that's their main thing is to be a yeah. fundraiser, which is how they justify their high salaries now, right? Yes. And so that's why this is, hey, this guy's going to give me money. That's my job to get money from this guy, fuck academics. Yeah. Right? It, that's pretty much what's happening here.
2: Yeah, and this I mean this sounds exactly like the sort of thing we have with the actual with actual elected officials that someone will serve in government and then they get a cushy high-paying lobbying job working for the industry that they used to have to regulate and then maybe they'll run for office again and then get another lobbying job. And the one one of the few things perhaps with, that was providing a check on those politicians was that from time to time studies would come out showing actual science that, this, that we would have some expectation the politicians would listen to. Yep. And I think businessmen took a little while to figure out, well, I can buy out the politicians. Maybe I should just buy out the scientists or the universities and have them put pressure on the scientists. Yep. But I mean, at a certain point, like you said, they took a while to sign on to this. And they still, um, they'll say, we can't prove that it's associated with fracking, but it does seem suspicious that fracking started right around when there was a 400-fold increase. I mean, if, it, if not that, I, is it kaiju, divine yeah. intervention? I, I don't know what could be causing this.
1: It just, it wouldn't make any sense. And so I, the numbers speak for themselves. In Oklahoma, where the number of earthquakes of a magnitude 3.0 or greater increased from an average of 1.6 a year before 2009 to 585 last year, researchers at the OGS have been slower than many others to draw a link between the industry and the earthquakes. Is everybody so, running
2: their dryer at the same time? Like, what else could be leading to that?
1: It's absurd. Heard, and
2: and look... I heard Chris Christie was... Anyway, <laughs> just visiting.
3: We got to throw in
1: that Chris Christie <laughs> joke, Okay. <laughs> It it has more of an impact than what the scientists put out there. You guys already know what the ramifications are. We're already way behind when it comes to doing something to mitigate the impact of climate change. And so this is not just about earthquakes, this is about what we're doing to the environment as a whole. These corporations and these companies and these oil tycoons have absolutely destroyed any possibility of doing something to save the environment. The only thing that we can do, of course, is try to get money out of politics. That is a long process. And I'm worried that by the time we actually do something about it, it's going to be too late. And what amazes me about people like Harold Hamm is you don't have a family, you're not worried about your grandkids or... Family members that are going to be around 100 years from now, when things get really bad, things are already bad. But imagine a century from now.
3: Yeah, but if he he can get a couple more fracking wells, then he can build every one of his uh, family a safe room. (laughs) Right? That's what he's trying to do. I think that's why he needs the money. He needs a safe room for when the apocalypse happens. The
1: greed is incredible. He's already so tremendously wealthy. He he already donated $20 million to the university. He's that wealthy. I mean, to the to the point where he can just put $20 million into a university to get the kind of scientific studies that he needs to save his business. I
3: wish they would study more CEOs like that. You know, it comes back to that movie Wall Street when Mm -hmm. uh, Michael Douglas... And they asked them, you know, how much greed, how many boats, how many yachts can you ski behind at the same time? Only one. How much do you need to feel? And so it's, I don't know, it's, the, it, to me, I think it's these guys have these, their hole in their soul and their personality and they just think more and more will fill it up and it doesn't, but they don't know what else to do. So they keep more and more and more yeah. and they still have a hole in their soul and all the oil they sell in the world won't fill it up.
4: I'm joined today by Kurt Davies who's director of the Climate Investigation Center it's a research group that works to expose the anti-environmental movement including those that try to stall and block policy solutions to climate change Kurt you you were involved in this extraordinary investigation into Willie Soon and the way in which climate denial is funded before we talk specifically about that investigation Talk to us generally about why, in spite of the fact that the overwhelming mountain of scientific evidence points to humans impacting the climate on Earth, we still see so much of the, so many of the same few climate skeptics cited time after time by the deniers. Why are we seeing that?
5: Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. And uh, this is one of my favorite subjects, and I kind of obsess about, the answer to your question. So I could go on for hours, but we don't have that much time. The, the basic thing is that they know uh, these fossil fuel corporations who don't want us to get down and solve climate change to start implementing, you know, real energy policy that cuts out fossil fuels, basically. They know that science is the engine that drives policy along, that, you know, if we are not certain about whether the Hudson River is polluted, we won't do anything about it. If we're not certain that climate change is caused by fossil fuel burning, we won't do anything about it. So they've funded their own echo chamber. They've sort of cultivated uh, people who will say things that the companies themselves can't be caught dead saying. And Willie Soon is a perfect example of this. Uh, He and his his, uh, ally there at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics Sally Balionis, who retired suddenly in 2009, for years have denied ozone the ozone hole. They've denied climate change. They say it's caused by sunspots or variations in the sun. The the warming we're seeing today is caused by something else. And Exxon funded them. The Koch Foundation funded them. American Petroleum Institute. Southern Company, a huge utility based in Georgia, all funded Willie Soon to put this counter-narrative out that the science is uncertain or that there are other things to explain the warming that we're experiencing
4: talk to us a little bit about let, let's stick with willie soon because it's just a good example a microcosm of so much of what's going on willie right. soon a solar physicist as you mentioned at the harvard smithsonian center for astrophysics he claims uh, uh, all of the different things you talked about including changes in temperature do do merely to, to sunspots uh... the sun uh, uh... just sort of the the natural cyclical uh, reality of the sun, how is he funded specifically? In other words, we might have this idea in our heads that someone comes to him and says, listen, Willie, we need you to say these things. Here's some money. But that's not really the way it actually happens.
5: Now, no, in fact, it's more complicated than that. He actually believes what he's saying. It's not like he, they are literally manufacturing doubt or they are you know, finding a scientist and say, go lie for us. They have found scientists that think climate change isn't real. And then they have given them a megaphone and they've given them funding. Uh, this, if you go back to a document that was leaked in 1998, there, now I'm getting some echo, I'm sorry. Good on your end? Yeah, we're fine. I apologize. So in, in 1998, there was a document that was leaked to the New York Times that showed a multi-million dollar plan to funnel money from uh, industry trade associations through front groups to basically media-trained scientists and give them venues to talk to insert uncertainty into the dialogue. And they explicitly say victory will be achieved when media, uh, legislators, even science teachers believe there is uncertainty. Willie Soon was a direct conduit where they sent money straight to his institution to pay for his research, and the the payback was Willie Soon publishing uh, peer reviewed literature in the in the scientific journals that would you know generate some uncertainty. So it's a it's sort of a, a, a feeder system that they developed a a network uh, of. Front groups, being libertarian, anti and anti environmental, anti regulatory organizations and trade associations like the American Petroleum Institute, they run money through those groups and they prop up these scientists in the public dialogue. So there, are right. many It would
4: be it would be sort of too obvious if they just say, "Hey, we want you to say these things that you may not believe." the 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 smarter way to go about it is fine, if only this tiny percentage share our views, let's exclusively fund those and make them prominent and known.
5: That's exactly right. And what's fantastic about this new Exxon investigation that's rolled out over the past couple of months through a group called Inside Climate News, an online uh, news source on climate change, and a group at Columbia School of Journalism working with the LA Times, they both have revealed old Exxon documents showing that Exxon knew much more about climate science than we previously knew they did, and then they went on to fund people like Willie Soon. In one case, there's a document from the mid-'90s where mobile oil scientists are are briefing the entire industrial coalition, the Global Climate Coalition, which was this front group set up to block the Kyoto Protocol and block the UN process that's happening right now in Paris, uh, they had a whole coalition to stop that. Their own scientists said arguments like Willie Soon's, sunspots, arguments that there's a, a divergence in the temperature record, they basically knocked down each of those arguments and say they really don't hold water to explain the warming that we're seeing. And then they didn't include that in the final draft that went public of that document. So this private conversation inside the industrial block they knew these arguments didn't hold water. Exxon goes on to promote those same arguments in years subsequent.
4: Let me ask you a little bit, Kurt. And we're speaking with Kurt Davies, uh, director of the Climate Investigation Center. Increasingly, we are seeing uh, from from the sort of the usual suspects, the talking point touted that hey, everything's fine as far as ice melt. That we now see more ice than ever in the Arctic, for example. Uh, have you investigated that? What's what's going on with that? the resurgence of that talking point that we're hearing lately?
5: Well, first of all, it's one of the biggest calamities, the meltdown of the uh, Greenland ice sheet and West Antarctic ice sheets. If they proceed as they are right now, we are in for a lot more sea level rise. It's where right. most of the ice that's above sea level on Earth is being stored right now. If they all, if all that melts, we get like 30 feet of sea level rise. It's a big deal. So cities like New York, Miami, Philadelphia, others are buried. Uh, the, so that's the reason that they don't want that to be true or don't want that, the uptake of that risk to be seen in the public dialogue. Um, the, the resurgence is because it's getting worse and also because there is increased press attention to it and so the counter-narrative is rising up
4: and talk a little bit about where you know the, they claim to have science on their side right they claim to say hey if we just look at the volume of this ice we have actually seen an increase and of course what what they would like to see follow from that is if there's more ice clearly things aren't warming everything's fine look in the other direction
5: that's right, and there is no evidence that that is occurring in the north in Antarctica. There was a study just a little while ago that showed more snowfall than they had previously measured in other parts of Antarctica that were adding ice incrementally, but the scientists concluded it wouldn't it wouldn't uh, balance out the ice that's being lost off of the West Antarctic ice sheet, which is really the biggest chunk that's falling into the ocean on a regular basis. So ice is a big question. It's you could call it an uncertainty, but all the news is bad. So it's not a it, you know the best way to think about this is the the deniers characterize it as a house of cards argument that if one piece of the scientific puzzle is missing, everything is everything falls away. It's not true. The better way to look at it is like a giant jigsaw puzzle. and yes, in all science there is, continuing exploration and fine point certainty. But the bigger the picture gets, you you sort of know the picture before you're done the puzzle, is the way to look at it. You know this is a picture of a pretty grim scene. Adding the other pieces are not going to make that scene into some beautiful sunrise. So the, the argument that we are missing information, and that's a reason not to act, is completely destructive.
6: Sunrise, sunrise
7: To give us some insight into what the hell is going on out here. <laughs> uh, Naomi, are you, are you live with us? I am, yes. Oh, there you go. Thanks Hi. for, thanks for being on video call with us. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Was fun to be- so, so what's up with the deniers? What's going on? We just looked at a graph of CO2 levels that have been going up. Uh, where is the disconnect? You've studied this. Well-
8: Yeah, that's the question that I asked myself about 10, 11, 12 years ago, and it was exactly what you just said. We have all this evidence, we have all this data, and many of the most prominent deniers were actually scientists themselves. So it wasn't plausible to think that they didn't understand the science. There had to be something else going on. And that was the mystery that we set out to answer and that we wrote about in our book, Merchants of Doubt. And the short answer is that these folks weren't interested in the scientific evidence, what they were interested in was a kind of political argument about preventing government interference in the marketplace, preventing the EPA and other organizations like the EPA from taking action to control the hazards and the damage of fossil fuels.
7: Okay, so what all you're saying is that there's a subset of scientists who were whose critical thinking uh, elements of their brain were overrun by their political leanings.
8: Well, in a sense, although I I wouldn't put it quite that way, it's more like they took on the view that the ends justified the means. That they thought the threat of government intervention in the marketplace was so great, um, these were old Cold Warriors. In a sense, they're still fighting the Cold War even after the Cold War is over.
7: It's we against the communists, basically.
8: It's we against the communists, which helps to explain why you get these strange things like when you say there's climate change, you get accused of being a communist, or you know Rush Limbaugh accuses climate scientists of being communists. So part of the mystery was trying to make sense of that. So the idea is that it's us against them, it's democracy against totalitarianism, it's capitalism against communism, and any threat to democracy, any threat to freedom, any threat to the free market system um, is so profound that it has to be resisted, and even if that means misrepresenting the science, discounting the science, ignoring the science, uh, these people were prepared to do that.
7: I would have thought that conserving the environment would be a conservative issue. <laughs> well, doesn't right. that to, where, where did I get that wrong?
8: Well, you did and that was true until the late 70s, early 1980s. There was a time in American history where conservatives were passionate about conserving the environment. But after the Nixon administration, the Republican Party took this very strong shift to the right under Ronald Reagan and started to really turn against the whole notion of regulation and turn against the notion of environmental regulation as one aspect of being hostile to regulation in general. And Ronald Reagan began to spread the message that government was the problem, not the solution, that we needed to get government off our backs, and especially that we needed to get government out of the private sector To let the market do its magic. Even if the government
7: has your long-term interest as its highest priority.
8: Well, Ronald Reagan didn't believe that. He thought that the government, you know, that that was the government, government might say that, but in the end, that wouldn't be what was, would happen. And so the entire Republican party really shifted in a very, very dramatic way from where it had been only 10 or 12 years before. And that put them on a collision course with science. I don't think Ronald Reagan set out to disrespect science. But the net result was that the, the political positions they took were incompatible with accepting what the scientific evidence was telling us about issues like acid rain, the ozone hole, and global warming.
4: Science is real,
9: from anatomy to geology. Science is real, from astrophysics.
2: This is the election where we're finally focusing on the corrosive effect of big money on politics. And we now have one more issue that we can add to that list. And once again, it involves the Koch brothers. This time, they're coming for your electric cars. I say to the 1% of you who have electric cars. There's a new group that's being set up with fossil fuel backing, and it hopes to spend about $10 million per year to boost petroleum-based transportation fuels and attack government subsidies for electric vehicles, according to uh, insiders in the refining industry. The group's broad mission will be to make the public aware of all the benefits of petroleum-based transportation fuels. Because maybe they've never been in a car in the past century. (laughs) The current administration has a bias towards phasing out these fuels according to that same um, source. So this is not necessarily a source who loves electric cars being as they are in the refining industry and thinking that Obama is trying to destroy oil. Uh, and so we have a little bit more information about what they're trying to do and why they're trying to do it. So, they're worried about state and community subsidies for those electric cars, uh, which can be significant. All told, in some states, you could save $10,000 uh, with those subsidies doing what subsidies are intended to do to help an industry, when that industry is new, to get a foothold until costs come down and it's competitive without the subsidies, which we're going to circle back around to the subsidies that they, aren't, they don't have a problem with. Uh, and they say that overall electric vehicle uh, adoption has started slowly, But it's certainly going to follow an exponential growth trajectory. Everybody assumes that in five to 10 years it'll be much higher. Once electric vehicle adoption hits a critical mass, I think it will take refiners, petroleum producers, and automakers uh, by surprise, according to this, in the, in the case, is an insider in uh, energy and environmental uh, field. Now, the reason we say that this has to do with the Koch brothers is it's being headed by James Mahoney, who has uh, long been considered a confidant of the Koch brothers and is a member of their company's board, and he's currently traveling around to different uh, oil uh, industry uh the the sort of meta-industries that control that industry, and uh, asking for money to run these attack
10: ads. Okay, so I thought the Koch brothers were all about ideology and ideas. Now, what's interesting is this is actually their corporate arm who uh, appears to want to go and lobby against their competition. Hmm, kind of sounds like crony capitalism. Mm -hmm. It kind of sounds like they've got a dog in this fight. Kind of sounds like... Millions, actually billions, of dollars are on the line here, and that they are lobbying for their own personal Economics. financial benefit. It ain't got nothing to do with ideas and ideology. Were you? I hope you weren't that much of a sucker. If you're a conservative or a libertarian, oh no, they're really good libertarians. They they just care about the ideology. Oh, it just happens to benefit them to the tune of billions of dollars. <laughs> what a coincidence! But I'm sure they have goodness in their heart. So look, uh, then that leads to the question of. Okay, as John alluded to, oh, you're against subsidies because you're a libertarian. Now, what's interesting is the oil industry gets a lot of subsidies. On average, uh, they've gotten about $4.7 billion in subsidies. Every year. Every year. You want to cut those? Oh, you don't want to cut those. Isn't that a funny coincidence? All of a sudden, they're
11: not so libertarian. And also, what's the <laughs> argument for those subsidies? The argument when they when they make a legitimate argument for the subsidies is not, oh, we just want to get rich. They're like, no, the, we need to be incentivized for new ways of doing things. Like, okay, that's right. That's what this is. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. What's <laughs> not, yeah.
10: And by the way, to that argument, here's what's not a good, uh, what's not a new way of doing things. Oil, no. okay. Yeah. It's the most profitable companies in the world. It's not a new thing. That oh, hey, all oh, the struggling oil business. Yeah. Let's prop it up a little bit because it might, it might do us well, some good in the future. No, the electric cars are exactly the kind of companies that need a little bit of subsidy or a little bit of boost so they can get going, right? Yeah. And and but if you say, hey, no, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. No subsidies for anybody. That's fine, but that's not what they're saying. Subsidies, billions of dollars for us, nothing for our competition. That is the definition of crony capitalism. You
1: know what they could do, and John brought this up during our production meeting, instead of trying to fight it, why don't they invest in it and make even more money? Yeah. Right. Mm. Like there's a market for it. it. I mean, why don't they invest a little in renewable energy? They have the money for it instead of taking all the money that they have and lobbying against it. If they invested, wouldn't that be more lucrative for them in the little years that they have left? I you know,
11: think the answer is no. I think that lobbying and 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 preventing change for as long as possible is pro. But it gives you an idea of just how much money they're making.
10: Now, remember, yeah. uh, they killed the electric car, not the Koch brothers, but the the. the, the Old car industry and the oil companies, etc., in the past. And if you've seen that wonderful documentary about who killed the electric car, and you know what they did, they delayed it for for oh, well, well over a decade. And in that decade, they made billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. Now, when you go into a new industry. Well, you got to compete with everybody. Yeah. When you've already established yourself in the old industry and it's a cash cow. Yeah. Well, and you've got all the politicians in your back pocket. That's easy money. Yeah. And and yeah. bear in mind when we're talking about
2: the big money that's in play here, uh, Coke Industries makes 115 billion dollars in revenue every single year, and uh, the oil uh, refining, pipeline, exploration operations are a gigantic Can portion. You keep of that. that
11: shot on John for a sec. Don't change the shot because on a, in a in a related story, uh, this just in uh, which is the Koch brother on the right, uh, David? Uh, Charles? Oh, Charles oh, okay. is with the glasses. And a related story: uh, Robert Redford will play uh, Charles Coke. <laughs> Charles Coke. Oh, d-
10: unfortunately, that's absolutely true. <laughs> Nothing is We have not said anything through her today. Okay. Yeah. So now, um, w- one more thing about this: um, if you uh, support the oil industry and you kill alternative energies, you know who else you help? Saudi Arabia. And the Middle East and Wahhabism and Fundamentalist Islam. Yeah. So apparently the Koch brothers are support the jihadis. This is how they get their money. Remember ISIS. Trump is talking about it all day. Why don't we bomb their oil? They all their money's coming from oil. That's ISIS. And the Koch brothers are saying, let's kill the electric car let so that we can help oil. Yes, I make money. So does ISIS. So do the yeah. Saudis, so to so do Fund fondale- Fundamentalist Muslims. I don't care. Yeah, I, but remember, the Koch brothers, their original fortune came from their dad who worked with the Nazis and 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 Stalin. That is not that is an absolute fact. Read Jane Mayer's book about it. Okay, so you think this family has problem making money in uh, morally dubious ways? Yeah. Isis is nothing compared to the Nazis. They're like, yeah, this is what the coke's do.
0: For a long time now, environmentalists have been advocating that we vote with our dollars, buy clean energy, even though it costs more because it makes a positive statement. But these days, the scales are tilting ever more in favor of renewables. Pretty soon, we're going to be able to pay less for renewables while making a positive statement anyways, or we'll be able to pay less for renewables while not giving a shit what kind of a statement we're making. For instance, about a year and a half ago, I received this message from our resident Texas conservative wave.
11: Hey, Jay, it's Wade. Um, a couple months ago, you inspired me with one of your uh, climate shows, and I decided, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do the switch to 100% renewable energy plan, and I did it,
12: and um, if you would believe this, it was actually the cheapest plan available. I was I was just shocked when it happened, or when she told me that, and sure enough, my electric electric bill has gone way down, and it's 100% renewable energy. I mean, who
0: would have thought, right? Now, Wade actually does care about climate change, but there are a lot of people in Texas who probably think it's made up, but wouldn't mind paying less on their electricity bill anyways, who are going to make that switch. Now, there's a huge wind boom going on in Texas, so results are going to vary from place to place, but I can tell you that I'm on 100% wind power from Pennsylvania, and my electric bills hover anywhere between like $35 and $45 a month. Last year, it went up as high as $55 in August with the AC running, keeping out the DCI. See summer swamp air, so I'm clearly not breaking the bank. Now, if you live in the east, northeast of the U.S. and you want to get on the same wind power system that I'm getting, just go to ethicalelectric.com slash best to sign up. If you're in another area of the U.S. like Wade, I recommend simply Googling the phrase buying green power to find the green power network from the U.S. Department of Energy, where you're going to be able to find green energy suppliers in your area. So again, if you're in the east or northeast, go to ethicalelectric.com best. That link is also in the sidebar of my website, or you can simply Google Buying Green Power. And if you're outside the U.S., you're on your own. Things,
11: this year, The Guardian's outgoing editor, Alan Rusbridger announced a major new initiative, his last at the newspaper, to put some heat into its global warming coverage. He told us about it in April. I think people feel helpless in the face of this story. They see governments finding it very hard to agree on action. And I think they've stopped reading. So one of the purposes of starting a campaign was to give them something to do. And the reaction has been very, very positive. The Guardian focused its campaign, called Keep It in the Ground, explicitly on the world's two largest charitable health organizations, the Wellcome Trust and the Gates Foundation. The something to do was the agitation in the form of articles and petitions urging investors to pull their money from fossil fuel stocks, not only because it's urgent environmentally, but because the world's oil reserves are declining in value on their way to being nearly worthless. Otherwise, we'll have to sit back and wait for the political leaders to go to Paris and and do something, which they might or they might not. But I think they're unlikely to move unless they feel the hot wind of public interest on their necks. That was eight months ago. Now, after Paris, we're checking back in on the Guardian's efforts to push for divestment with their partners at 350.org, but also to reshape climate change coverage. Russ Bridger's successors have since moved on to what they're calling Phase 2 of the climate change campaign, HOPE. James Randerson is an editor at The Guardian, and he focuses on environment and science news. James, welcome to On the Media.
6: Thank you for having me.
11: Before we get to the HOPE part, let's begin with the glory. Is there any so far? What did happen with the Wellcome Trust and the Gates Foundation?
6: We're still waiting for them to do the right thing, but I think there is some glory to go around. Organisations worth in total $3.4 trillion have now made a commitment of one kind or another to divest. That's over 500 organisations. I think that's a pretty amazing statement from civil society. Gates said that he thinks that divestment is, quote, a false solution. He takes, I think, quite a literal view... He is saying, you know, somebody buys the shares, somebody sells the shares, but nothing really changes in the real world. If someone divests them, someone else is purchasing them. Exactly. But we would say actually something quite profound is happening there because it's about a political statement, and the sum total of those political statements has been adding up. There is now a local campaign that sprung up in Seattle that is putting pressure locally on the Gates organization there. Gates though, separately and interestingly, back in the summer, made a big announcement about putting $2 billion into research into renewable energy technologies. And now we'll never know, but I think that he was feeling the pressure of the campaign and although he didn't agree with divestment, that was his response.
11: Throwing you up $2 billion bone.
6: Yes, exactly.
11: If I understand correctly, he also argued against the divestment campaign on sort of psychological grounds, that by focusing on divestment and not on pending catastrophe, you and other climate advocates were leaving, if you will, a lot of reserves of environmental passion in the ground, untapped.
6: Environmentalists have been talking about catastrophe for a long time and arguably it hasn't got very far. As a newspaper, journalistically, we've been talking about catastrophe a lot. And, you know, as Alan said in that clip, a large group of people have stopped reading those kind of stories. You know, the argument that Gates is making that there's some kind of sort of finite well of concern and that by diverting the concern over here, it means less gets done over there. I'm not sure it really works like that. What we've seen with this campaign is loads of organizations have made the decision to divest.
11: James, the original campaign was supposed to empower readers to make them feel that they weren't just hapless victims, but that they could actually participate in the solution. You have gone in and spoken to readers in focus groups.
6: What did they tell you? So one of our fears was that people would react by saying, I don't trust The Guardian anymore now because they've turned into an NGO or something like that. Nobody said that. The very clear message that we had back from people was that we want to have a sense that this is possible. This big change that you're talking about in society and in the global economy is doable because so much of what you read about climate change is about doom and gloom, how difficult it is. And frankly, most sensible people reading those stories will want to just go and curl up in bed under their duvet and (laughs) not think about it too hard. And also, I think it made us realize how difficult, actually, divestment is as a concept to get across. But, you know, the biggest thing that came out for us was people wanted hope.
11: Climate change isn't necessarily uh, a subject that newspapers look to for feel-good coverage. What has The Guardian found to give its readers hope?
6: We wanted to make the point that there's a lot going on out there that shows us a way that we are going to be able to change this economy, or at least... Potentially we are, and in particular we wanted to highlight solar power because the cost of solar is just coming down so rapidly and that is transforming the economics. Back in 2009 at the Copenhagen climate talks, the green economy more generally, solar power in particular, it felt a bit like it was a PowerPoint presentation that politicians were being offered and was really a bit of an unknown. That's one of the reasons, I think, why the stars were just simply not aligned for some kind of agreement at Copenhagen. And the cost of solar has come down 70% since then, and it's continuing to fall, and it's falling faster than people predicted. And that is going to make the whole transition much easier and is going to mean that rather than this being about huge costs and government subsidies and taxes and all that kind of thing, if the right policy frameworks are put in place, it will happen.
11: You mentioned, as did Russ Bridger, that climate journalism has become a kind of fearful background noise. Environmentalists say the sky is falling and the public just pulls up the covers. Now comes your the sky can be propped up message. I wonder if there's a risk
6: to suddenly offering hope. Will hope be mistaken for an all clear? It's a very good point. I mean, I think it's more about turning the dial a bit. I think we realised that we were just underdoing the bit that actually people are probably most interested in, which is how are we going to get where we need to go? And so, you know, we've done a succession of stories of sending reporters out to places like Burundi, Rwanda... Chile, where there are some really groundbreaking renewable energy projects, but that doesn't mean that we're not doing the new bits of science that come out. We're not doing investigations into fossil fuel companies and all the other things that we were doing before.
0: we have reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, Break Free 2016, a global wave of resistance to keep coal, oil, and gas in the ground. 2015 was the hottest year on record. February 2016 was the most abnormally hot month in history by a long shot. But here's some good news. The winds of change powered by an energized and organized climate movement are blowing strong, and the fossil fuel giants are starting to sway. This year, BP announced that its fourth quarter profits sank by nearly 70%. Royal Dutch Shell warned its profits would be cut in half from the previous year. In Paris, 193 countries agreed to end the age of fossil fuel. President Obama released and is fighting to uphold a clean power plan that would shutter hundreds of coal-fired power plants. This is an unprecedented opportunity for the climate movement. For the first time, we have momentum on our side. But to take advantage of the shift in global awareness and make the full transition to renewable energy, we must keep the pressure on. And so, in that spirit, we are reminding you again today of 350.org's Break Free 2016, a global wave of mass action over May 4th through the 15th that will target the world's most dangerous fossil fuel projects in order to keep coal oil, and gas in the ground, and accelerate the transition to 100% renewable energy. Break Free 2016 has strategically selected the locations of these global actions, citing that, quote, fighting climate change requires the courage to confront polluters where they think they are most powerful. For years, communities on the front lines have led that struggle, and this May, we can join them, unquote. In the U.S., actions will take place in many regions of the country at the following locations, Anacortes, Washington, Albany, New York, the Chicago area in Illinois, Denver, Colorado, Los Angeles, California, and Washington, D.C. If these action locations are not close to you, the organizers encourage you to organize buses, trains, and bike pools to the event in your region of the country. And if you absolutely can't make it to one of these actions, you can organize your own local action as part of Break Free. Visit breakfree.com org to sign up and get further details on the action nearest you. Use hashtag BreakFree2016 and hashtag KeepItInTheGround to join the conversation online. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources and as always this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofaloft.com. So if the future of humanity is important to you be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about BreakFree2016 via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Let's show the fossil fuel giants that we're ready to break free from fossil fuels once and for all.
13: Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bow? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change.
12: The World Economic Forum uh, last month in Davos, after their annual survey of 750 economists, said the climate crisis is now the number one risk. the global economy. Uh, So you get central bankers like Mark Carney, the head of the UK, central bank, saying the vast majority of the carbon reserves are unburnable. Subprime carbon. I'm not going to remind you of what happened with subprime mortgages, but it's the same thing. If you look at all of the carbon fuels that were burned since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, this is the quantity burned in the last 16 years. Here are all the ones that are proven and left on the books, $28 trillion, the International Energy Agency says only this amount can be burned. So the rest, $22 trillion, unburnable, risk to the global economy. That's why the divestment movement makes practical sense and not just is a moral imperative. Now, so the answer to the first question, must we change is, yes, we have to change. Second question, can we change? This is the exciting news. The best projections in the world 16 years ago were that by 2010, the world would be able to install 30 gigawatts of wind capacity. We beat that mark by 14 and a half times over. We see an exponential curve for wind installations now. We see the cost coming down Dramatically, Some countries uh, take Germany, an industrial powerhouse with a climate not that different from Vancouver's, by the way. One day last uh, December got 81% of all of its energy from renewable sources, mainly solar and wind. A lot of countries are getting more than half on an average basis. More good news, energy storage uh, from batteries particularly is now beginning to take off because the cost has been coming down very dramatically to solve the intermittency problem. With solar, the news is even more exciting. The best projections 14 years ago were that we would install one gigawatt per year by 2010. When 2010 came around, we beat that mark by 17 times over. Last year, we beat it by 58 times over. This year, we're on track to beat it 68 times over. We're going to win this. We are going to prevail. The exponential curve on solar is even steeper and more dramatic. When I came to this stage 10 years ago, this is where it was we have seen a revolutionary breakthrough in the emergence of these exponential curves. And the cost has come down 10% per year for 30 years, and it's continuing to come down. Now, the business community has certainly noticed this because it's crossing the grid parity point cheaper. Uh, solar penetration rates are beginning to rise. Grid parity is understood as that line, that threshold, below which renewable electricity is cheaper than electricity from burning fossil fuels. Uh, that threshold is a little bit like the difference between 32 degrees Fahrenheit and 33 degrees Fahrenheit, or zero and one Celsius. It's a difference of more than one degree. It's a difference between ice and water. And in markets, it's the difference between markets that are frozen up and liquid flows of capital into new opportunities for investment. This is the biggest new business opportunity in the history of the world. And two-thirds of it is in the private sector. We are seeing an explosion of new investment. Starting in 2010, investments globally in renewable electricity generation surpassed fossils. The gap has been growing ever since. Uh, the projections for the future are even more dramatic even though fossil energy is now still subsidized at a rate forty times larger than renewables and by the way if you add the projections for nuclear on here and particularly if you assume that the work many are doing to try to break through to safer and more acceptable more affordable forms of nuclear this could change even more dramatically so is there any precedent for such a rapid adoption of a new technology Well, there are many, but let's look at cell phones. In 1980, AT&T, then Ma Bell, commissioned McKinsey to do a global market survey of those clunky new mobile phones that appeared then. How many can we sell by the year 2000, they asked. McKinsey came back and said 900,000. And sure enough, when the year 2000 arrived, they did sell 900,000 in the first three days. And for the balance of the year, they sold 120 times more. And now there are more cell connections than there are people in the world. So why were they not only wrong, but way wrong? I've asked that question myself. Why? (laughs) Uh, And I think the answer is in three parts. First, the cost came down much faster than anybody expected, even as the quality went up. And low-income countries, places that did not have a landline grid they leapfrog to the new technology the big expansion has been in the developing countries so what about the electricity grids in the developing world well not so hot and in many areas they don't exist there are more people without any electricity at all in india than the entire population of the united states of america so now we're getting this solar panels on grass huts and new business models that make it affordable mohammed yunus financed this one in bangladesh Uh, With micro credit, this is a village market. Bangladesh is now the fastest deploying country in the world. Two systems per minute on average, night and day. And we have all we need. Enough energy from the sun comes to the earth every hour to supply the full world's energy needs for an entire year. It's actually a little bit less than an hour. So the answer to the second question, can we change, is clearly yes. And it's an ever firmer yes. Now, so last question. Will we change? Paris really was a breakthrough. Some of the provisions are binding, and the regular reviews will matter a lot. But nations aren't waiting. They're going ahead. China has already announced that starting next year, they're adopting a nationwide cap-and-trade system. They will likely link up with the European Union. The United States has already been changing. All of these coal plants were proposed in the last 10 years and canceled. All of these existing coal plants were retired. All of these coal plants have had their retirement announced. All of them canceled. We are moving forward. Last year, if you look at all of the investment in new electricity generation in the United States, almost three-quarters was from renewable energy, mostly wind and solar. We are solving this crisis. The only question is, how long will it take to get there? So. It matters that a lot of people are organizing to insist on this change. Now, almost 400,000 people marched in New York City before the UN special session on this. Many thousands, tens of thousands marched in cities around the world. And so I am extremely optimistic. As I said before, we are going to win this. I'll finish with this story. When I was 13 years old, I heard that proposal by President Kennedy to land a person on the moon and bring him back safely in 10 years. And I heard adults of that day and time say, that's reckless, expensive, may well fail. But eight years and two months later, in the moment that Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, there was a great cheer that went up in NASA's mission control in Houston. Here's a little-known fact about that. The average age of the systems engineers, the controllers in the room that day was 26, which means, among other things, their age when they heard that challenge was 18. We now have a moral challenge that is in the tradition of others that we have faced. One of the greatest poets of the last century in the U.S., Wallace Stevens, wrote a line that has stayed with me after the final no, there comes a yes. And on that yes, the future world depends. When the abolitionists started their movement, they met with no, after no, after no, and then came a yes. The women's suffrage and women's rights movement met endless no's until finally there was a yes. The civil rights movement, the movement against apartheid, and more recently the movement for gay and lesbian rights uh, here in the United States and elsewhere. After the final no comes a yes. When any great moral challenge is ultimately resolved into a binary choice... Between what is right and what is wrong, the outcome is foreordained because of who we are as human beings, 99% of us. That is where we are now, and it is why we are going to win this. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act, but I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource.
0: We just heard clips featuring the Young Turks on oil tycoons attacking fracking researchers, David Packman interviewing Kurt Davies about how the climate denial industry works, StarTalk Radio speaking with Naomi Orsky about what motivates climate deniers, the Young Turks on the Koch brothers taking aim at electric cars, On the media, spoke with James Randerson about the Guardian newspaper's new hopeful vision for the fight against climate change. Our activism for today is Break Free 2016 from 350.org. And lastly, we heard from Al Gore with his case for climate optimism. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and
9: sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. My name is Robin, calling from Sweden in Europe. First-time caller, but I have been listening for at least three years to your show. The reason I haven't called before is that I didn't feel like I had anything to to contribute with, uh, because 99% of the time I feel like it's American issues. But now I feel that I do. I have something to contribute with. I want to comment on... uh, and develop on what Patrick said in the 999th episode about socialism, because I live in a socialistic country myself. If I understood him correctly, Patrick talked both about what he believed when he was younger and also described what he thinks today. So this is no criticism about what he said. I just want to point that out. I find it interesting that many people in the States connect socialism to communism and con- communism, and the Soviet Union, or China. For me, socialism and communism are two different things, especially that kind of socialism that Sweden embraced in the early 1900s and developed from one of the most poor countries to one of the most wealthy. We even got aid from Brazil in the early 1900s. Uh, One can have a socialistic society and embrace capitalism to a degree. It needs to be heavily regulated, so it benefits everyone. Uh, In Sweden uh, makes an average CEO 46 times as much as a worker in comparison to the U.S. uh, 303 workers per CEO. That's the numbers I could find in a way. And we start to think that 46 worker salary per CEO is too much, because we have been af- been affected by the global market, and the difference has increased during the last years. I suppose it's hard to withstand the pressure uh, when the world is getting smaller. Uh, what I mean is that it is possible to have a socialistic society with healthcare for all and free university and not be communists. In my mind, I find our society is somewhere in the middle between yours and the complete opposite side. I don't think it's fair to let socialism carry the burden of what communist dictatorships did in the past. It's too bad that many still can't, can't see the difference. Uh, one thing that I think need to happen to a society to be able to function with a lot of safety nets is a willingness to pay taxes. I've talked to people in the United States and uh, they don't trust the government. Maybe that's the, the difference, the big issue. In general, we in Sweden trust our government in giving us these things. And we feel more or less okay to pay higher taxes because of this. Because we know that it will go to good things. As an example, I doubt that many parties in the world can win elections by saying that we will raise taxes. But here, it's totally possible. Okay, I'm sorry that I couldn't go deeper into these subjects, but I feel like I've taken more than my share of time. So thanks for your 1,000 episodes. You rock. And I hope for another 1,000. Thanks, and uh, bye-bye.
14: Hi Jay, this is Aaron from Philadelphia. I'm calling to respond to Patrick from Dallas with his comments on episode 999 with regard to his gut reaction to the term socialism and how he thinks it's a tough sell to Americans who are not used to the idea of giving so that other people can benefit and how the American ideal, the American dream is fairly individualistic and uh, perhaps a little selfish. There's a meme that I've seen going around on social media the last week or so that is supposedly written uh, by someone from Finland as a sort of open letter. I think it directly addresses this point. Uh, It's also how I tend to see the world and the role of government in my life, which perhaps is why I've naturally gravitated towards democratic socialism, especially having had the opportunity to live in other advanced countries that have a much more robust social safety net than the United States has. I am totally in favor of paying taxes when I think I'm getting good stuff for me. And that's what this Finnish author had to say as well, that Finns aren't interested in a democratic socialist state because they're just inherently altruistic it's because they're just as selfish as the next human being but they also see within that when they're giving their money to these government services they're getting a lot of really good things in return they get good infrastructure top-rated education in the world public education in the world universal health care i've even heard about a program for new mothers where Not only do they receive paid maternity leave, but they essentially get a baby starter kit from the government that has things like diapers and clothes and a warm jacket that every Finnish mother gets regardless of her social economic status. So rich and poor mothers alike always know that at least their kid's going to have something to wear and diapers and some food and things like that for when they get started. That's the kind of thing I want to see from the U.S. government as well. I think the Reagan revolution did a really good job of decoupling the idea of our taxes pay for good stuff uh, in people's minds in the U.S. So the only thing we see our taxes paying for anymore is endless overseas wars and kickbacks to well-connected corporations and none of the money coming back to us and I think if we can flip that and say hey we don't really need all these overseas military bases we don't need to be paying already monumentally profitable corporations even more money in the form of tax breaks we can be using that money instead to pay for roads and schools and health care and all the things that people want and then when people are getting good stuff they'll see that, hey, government actually is a good place in our lives. Thanks for hosting the show, as always, and keep up the good work.
13: Hey, Jay, this is Marty from Eagle Rock, California, and I was interested in the concept of offense and how you said that offense becomes an issue when damage is done. And I think that damage is such a subjective issue. How do you measure that? At Yale this last fall, there was a lecturer who said during Halloween that Halloween was a day of subversion for children and young people who might want to be a bit inappropriate or provocative or offensive. And I think her intention was that people should dress up how they want, and then, if they offend other people, then engage in a dialogue so that they learn something from it. I might be reading something into it, but apparently other people interpreted it as her condoning dressing up in blackface, and so there were protests for demanding uh, her resignation. But I I don't know specifically what she said was damaging. And I was in college way back when, and I was very strident. And when I got out of college, I realized that you kind of have to deal with assholes all the time, and having those coping skills is, is very important you need to have the appropriate and productive responses when when somebody pushes your emotional buttons. So if somebody in a dialogue uh, says to me, oh, you're offended, deal with it, that's a really silencing thing to say. And I totally agree with that. But at the same time, if you say, I'm offended, shut up, that's equally silencing. And I, I really want to know and engage in a, a genuine back and forth dialogue to know what the other person is saying. And I think that both sides, uh, both reactions that I just demonstrated were are signs of immaturity that don't really encourage true back and forth dialogue. And I think that's the key to getting through a lot of these very, very difficult and nuanced issues. My two cents. Thanks for the show, Jay. Appreciate
5: it.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now today, I just want to respond to Marty about the concept of offense, because I get the feeling a little bit from Marty but more from other responses I've gotten that the discussion is just a topic ripe for confusion. So Marty started off by summing up my previous comments by saying that quote, offense becomes an issue when damage is done. And right there, I feel like we're already off to a bad start. I'm not trying to nitpick Marty. I'm not saying he's completely confused but that sounds like bad framing to me. It's not how I would have said it. And I'm not even sure what he means if I were to take it totally literally. So I would prefer to just start fresh. This conversation was started by Trey from Corvallis who called in and basically made the statement that being offended doesn't do anyone any good. And he went on to sort of scold some people who had called in and expressed some feelings of having taken offense. And my response was to basically agree with the fundamentals as to whether taking offense does any good, but then pointed out that he was missing the much more important part of the discussion, which is when actual harm or damage is done. So Marty today points out that damage is subjective, which is sometimes true, but not always. There are a lot of times when it is not the least bit subjective. Being a member of a minority group based on race or sexual preference or gender identity or a whole slew of other things very often leads to very real damages that can be shown with statistics. For instance, if you are transgender, you are much more likely to be murdered or to commit suicide. So, making transphobic statements or passing legislation that is discriminatory against trans people may be considered offensive, yes, but much more importantly, it is perpetuating that status quo set of social norms that make it more likely for people to be violent or hateful towards trans people, a real-world harm. And just to be super clear and avoid any confusion— There is not a causal relationship between someone being offended and real-world damage being done. People take offense to things all the time that cause no damage to anyone. People are offended by Janet Jackson's nipple. People are offended by the existence of gay people and their desire to get married. Hell, some people are still offended by interracial marriage. But none of that offense being taken means that any actual damage is being done to anyone. Okay, and now on to Marty's main point about how to have a productive discussion. Uh, He says that saying, uh, hey, you're offended, we'll deal with it, or... I'm offended, so you should shut up, are both sort of equally silencing and immature. And I totally agree. And the answer to how to have a productive conversation is what I've been talking about all along. You have to move past the topic of offense to see if you can get down to any actual harm, if there is any. So taking offense, it's like a gut reaction. It's it's emotional and reflexive, Uh, you know. And emotion and reflexive instincts drive much of what we do and think. Our brains work so much faster on the reflexive level than our analytical mind ever could. I notice this happen to me all the time. I have gut instinct reactions to things all the time on all sorts of subjects, well before I'm able to coherently explain my actual thoughts and my actual reaction. So taking offense is one of many possible emotional responses that that reflexive part of our brain uses that you know it kicks in right away, it gives you an instant reaction to something new and sometimes that's you taking offense to something. Now trying to have a meaningful conversation based on just that. I have taken offense, and that is as far as my thought process has gone on this subject, but I know I'm offended, and I'm going to let you know about it. That is not going to get you very far, and I agree with Marty that attempting to have that conversation is basically an immature way of approaching the problem. Being able to explain some underlying harm being done, if any, that is the analytical and contemplative parts of our minds that take much longer to formulate thoughts, but comes out with much more meaningful conclusions. Our thoughtful conclusions will often match our basic initial gut instincts, but we'll actually be able to explain our thoughts to ourselves and others. So if someone says to you, hey, so you're offended, deal with it, your response can be that, hey, you know, whether or not I'm offended is beside the point. Because what's really important is, and then you go on to explain the underlying problem with what that person did that goes much deeper than just causing offense. Or, conversely, if you hear yourself saying, I'm offended by that, so you should stop, you're not necessarily wrong But your thought process is incomplete. Go beyond that. Push yourself to figure out, why am I offended by this? What is the underlying cause of my offense? Is there some real damage being done that I can explain that adds a little bit of weight to my argument? Because if there is, I think there is a much, much better chance you're actually going to be able to get through to the person you're confronting if there's more to what you're saying than just, I feel offended. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And especially on Facebook, select to see our Content first so that you can make sure to see the clips and quotes that we push out from the show so that you can effortlessly share those with your network. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
14: And it's a crying shame we get so trainfully Can't see past our own sad story.